I come from Lancashire originally, and um, I, I took the name Sally from the Valley from they did uh, Sally Fields, Shirley Fields, whatever her name was, who did the war things anyway. We did Sally from our rally, so it was a pun on Sally from our rally, really. So that's very good. And she's a Lancashire woman. She did all the wartime songs. I came down to London when I was 18. Um, I squatted for a while. Um, eventually got a job, got myself sorted out, got a flat. Lived in lots of different flats. Started out in Earl's Court, went to Fulham. Went to, well, probably all over, all over Fulham and Earl's Court. Until I, I really came down with the intention of doing drama. I always wanted to act. And eventually I got in touch with a community theatre group who were based in Kensal Green. And I went down to see them. I was meant to Kensal Green. Having come from Earl's Court and Fulham, I was like, oh, I'm never coming here again. <laughs> this is the pits. Harrow Road, it just looked so dirty and grim. Really, you don't we won't know it in those days. It was full of industry and poverty, really. And it, uh, the theatre centre, as it was then called, later became Moonshine, was based in an old church just on the corner of Victor Road and Harrow Road. So we went in, we, uh, I saw a children's play that they were doing, and then I think at the end of it they said, do you want to help clear the chairs away? I was like, well, I've come here to act, I've not come here to clear chairs away. Anyway, I did, obviously, and um, I went back to my little flat in Fulham or wherever, and uh, I thought, actually, it, it suited me. And I went back again, and, and really I never looked back. I, I sort of got really involved in the work at Moonshine, got very involved in community theatre, did a bunch in Judy, we did the Brent show every year, we did lots of festivals, we did our own festivals, we did other people's festivals, we were all over the place, including going abroad to India. And eventually, obviously, I moved to Kensal Green. I lived in, what was the first place? I lived in College Road. Um, no, I didn't live in College Road. I lived in Wrigley Road, behind the College Park pub. And um, then I moved to Harlesden. And I've always lived in Brent ever since. I have been a, a Brent person. And do you, uh, now you want me to tell you how I came into contact with reggae. Up until then, I could, I could say my musical tastes were... They were always diverse. Mm -hmm. I liked a lot of different kinds of music. I used to work in a record shop mm -hmm. up north. One of my favourite jobs ever. I loved music. I always loved music. I loved opera. I loved folk. I was sort of a little bit unhappy with the deep underground sort of deep purple Led Zepp scene. And I liked bits of it. I found it a little bit pretentious, even at the time. And there were way too many guitar solos and drum solos for my liking. It used to go on and on and on. I saw a lot of stuff in Blackpool. A lot of big names. Um, you know, but music was always my interest. Liked disco, obviously it was the 70s. Donna Summer, you know. All the usuals. I, I actually liked people like um, Jimi Hendrix as well. I wanted to come down for the Isle of Wight Festival. I was very upset because I was only 16 at the time. I wasn't allowed. And by the time I came down to London in 72, Hendrix was dead. And I missed him. <laughs> so you can see I had sort of various tastes. Um, I must have been in my early 20s when I was... We, we had a party. I, I said this in the bio. We had a party at our house in Harlesden. 
I wasn't very keen on having parties. I had lots of parties. <laughs> and my friend at the time was going out with a Jamaican, and um, he came, and about four o'clock in the morning, he said, oh, I'm off now. But he wasn't going home. He, he was going out to another place. And I was like, okay, bring me, because this party's dead now. <laughs> so we went down to uh, Shabine in on All Saints Road, Clegons, no longer there. Sort of not quite opposite the mangrove, very close to the mangrove. And we went down into sort of a basement, you know, big speakers in every corner, pumping bass. And the most amazing, incredible music. Mm. I, I couldn't believe it. I, I felt like I'd come home. To be fair, I was like, oh, this is, this is the kind of rhythm I like. This has got a, a dancing beat. I love to dance. I always love to dance. That's why the guitar solos were no good for me. <laughs> Unless you like doing air guitar, you can't really dance to them. And I sort of went on from there. I, I kind of went to other places, got to sort of know where all the clubs were. and We went to blues parties, to other Shabines. I know all the Shabines from 70s London, I'm afraid. Because in those days, of course, reggae was in its... What can I say? Now I suppose it's easier to get venues. In those days, I think venues were difficult to come by. There were some main main venues. Obviously, there was um, <coughs> Four Aces, Cubies, Dalston. Went into both of those very good clubs. What else was there? There was loads. There was Columbo's, Carnaby Street. Um, there was People's, Edgeware Road, which I didn't go to that much. So there was a there was a reg- a big reggae scene, but it was pretty much. There was all nations as well, sorry, in Hackney. Loads of places, Mm. Brixton, Hackney, Brent, hmm, not so much really. I I was always disappointed, considering Brent had the most diverse, even then it was a very diverse population, didn't have that much, and still doesn't. We had the heritage for a while, now it's gone, which is most upsetting. We needed needed a, a, a good reggae venue, I felt, here. Shabim would work like this. Now, to, except I'm a white woman, so we did have to pay to get into the Shabim. A lot of other guys didn't. I saw them come up to the door. There'd be a big, heavy door. It would open a little crack, and if they thought you were okay, they'd let you in. As I say, a lot of the guys, they just moseyed down. If it was me, I'd have to pay 50p, which I thought was a bargain, to be fair. I did not mind paying my 50p. So the door would open a little crack just to make sure you were okay, and you then you crept through the door. Always downstairs, down in a basement, nearly always. Can't remember any Shabine that wasn't in the basement. <laughs> Not found. And as I said, it was quite a small space. I don't know measurements, but it would never be a large space. It'd be quite cramped. It packed out with people all night long. Didn't matter what time you went there. Sometimes you'd go till nine o'clock in the morning, still be packed. And as I say, probably, I, I, I seem to remember four speakers in each corner. Yeah, and when I say speakers, I mean they were the size of the wall with, I don't know, woofers and bases and tweeters. I don't know what, I, I don't know the technical terms, I'm afraid, but there'd be three or four boxes piled on top of each other. And there'd be a small bar with a little grill where you'd probably get your baby sham <laughs> or your brandy. No wine in those days. <laughs> and, uh, There'd be hardly any lighting, quite dark. Be smoky, everybody would be smoking. No, no non-smoking men. And be smoking everything, tobacco, weed, 
and you would just dance. The music would be so loud that there wasn't really that much opportunity for genteel conversation or anything like that. You danced. It was great. I <laughs> loved it. Just dancing and music. I liked all of them. I, I didn't have any preferences. I mean, blues parties were nice as well, but they'd be in somebody's house. And again, ram-packed, ram-a-jammer. You wouldn't hardly be able to get through the front door before you got some space for dancing. Nice thing about blues party would be food as well. You'd get your sort of curry goat and rice and peas at some point. I don't know, people just piling in and dancing and listening to what is phenomenally good music. It was always, for me, the buzz of reggae, and still is, the buzz of reggae. I'll be going out next week to, to hear some. I'm going to see Shaka at Subterranean. Used to go to Subterranean quite a lot in the past as well. I used to see David Rodigan, like Rodigan, obviously, a lot of other. But I like One Love, Coxon, obviously. Manasseh, I liked Manasseh. I used to go to I used to have a night at Dingwalls. That would probably be the 90s. And I just sort of go, go take through the decades, really. Obviously, the Shabin stuff fell off after the 70s because, well, there were more venues, more places doing it, like Dingwalls or like Subterranea. Or, or, or there was a place in the West End as well, down Dean Street. can't remember what it was called, but that was really nice. All sort of like a little cave thing underneath, around the corner from Ronnie Scott's. I like Ronnie Scott's as well. Yeah. Actually, we used to go there. There was a... Upstairs at Ronnie's as well. Should do a mix of music. And how did I find out about the Shabines? I don't know. Well, as I say, my, my friend's boyfriend took me originally, and he used to always take me down. I'd, I'd always go with him to Clegons because he'd look after me, make sure I got home safe, you know, that sort of thing. But I never felt unsafe. I do remember once, oh, how I found out. I just knew them all. How did I know? How did I know? I don't know. Word of mouth. I, was, I always felt... Okay, I mean, I've never felt at all concerned about being there. I, I, it was mostly, I suppose, back then, probably a more male affair. I was a feminist at the time, and I thought, well, I will go where I want. I don't care. I'm, I'm entitled to go where I like, how I like. You know, if a man can do it, so can I. So can I. I like the music. I want to dance. I'm coming. And I didn't really feel unaccepted at all, no. Never have. You know, generally everybody was there for the same purpose and if you were there to, to dance, nobody was going to bother you. I found the lyrics universal because um, a lot of people, obviously, a lot of white people used to say, you know, like, what do you see in that? A lot of white people I met didn't like reggae at all. The, ba the bass upset them for some reason. They found it boring. They, I don't know, they found it sort of all one thing. I, I, people have said that to me and I'm like, no, you, you're not listening. <laughs> it's a really subtle music form and it isn't just one beat going on and on and on. It is the bass for me, it's the heart, it's, it's your heartbeat. But then there's the intricate layers on top of that. And, and in those days, of course, nobody had drum machines or anything like that. People played that music and, and the horns, I love the horn sections. Oh, some just amazing horn sections, some of the old tunes. But layered on top of that, I felt, were lyrics that were universal to all people, not just black people. I found their songs about love always very emotional, very moving, very expressive, pretty much covered the whole gamut of love and relationships. Mm -hmm. um, 
I also like their social commentary. They'd be had to be humorous songs, you know what I mean, that would you know refer to what was going on in the world or in their lives, which I enjoyed. Probably top of the list would be the political, mm. very very political lyrics. It taught me a lot about the past that I probably hadn't really looked into all that much until I got involved and um, did a lot of reading around it. Uh, it taught me a lot of history, but I think even now, if you just listen to regular lyrics, you probably wouldn't even need to read, pick up a history book because it tells you everything you need to know about what happened and how people felt about it and how people still feel. And I thought it was a really important message and I still think it's an important message to get across. I've got a huge collection, I do listen, but I went to see Horace Andy earlier on this year at the Jazz Café. It's knocking on a bit. I've seen quite a few people at the Jazz Café. They quite often bring in the old artists. I'm going to see Jashaka, uh, who also I've seen over the years, since the 70s. My goodness, he's still going strong. He used to go to the Rocket back in the 80s, which is down Holloway Road. That was a big... Shaka venue. Mm. I used to go down and see Abishanti down in Brixton. That was probably 90s, like Abishanti. I like dub as well. Mm. I, 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 honestly, there's hardly any reggae I don't like. I, I like the whole caboodle. Sometimes, you know, it's nice just to have a, a lover's rock session, but mostly I like the political, I like the dub. And my memory's going as I get older. I, I, what was my very first record? I went into, it wasn't Hawkeye, it was the other record shop, which I think was called Starlight. I can't remember, it was down on Craven Park. And I know I went in, I must have gone in after I'd gone down to the Shabin. I said, listen, I've been to somewhere where they play a lot of reggae, really liked it, don't know the name of any of them, but play me something. <laughs> I'll tell you if that's what I was listening to. I don't want Bob Marley. Because <laughs> I had Bob Marley anyway, obviously everybody heard Bob Marley. I heard Bob Marley since I worked in the record shop back in the early 70s. Oh, gosh, yeah, everybody's nicked a bit of reggae <laughs> along the way and never credit it. I'm back to Eric Clapton and his I Shot the Sheriff, you know what I mean? Everybody's on it. Mind you, having said that, a lot of reggae artists cover other tunes that were popular back from the 50s. I don't know, reggae's got a deep history. It's a long, old history. So there's a lot of really fabulous reggae covers of all sorts, including Bob Dylan and everybody, you know. They've done the works. So, you know, yeah, there's a bit of sharing. I do think reggae doesn't get enough acknowledgement, though, in terms of what they've contributed to music. I think it was always a very difficult business. I mean, if you watch films like The Harder They Come, um, you know, and that's not just true for reggae artists. I think for a lot of music artists in the 70s, you, you, you wrote something, you produced it, you so and then you just sold it, and, and then it wasn't yours anymore. And somebody else made a fat load of money out of it, and you didn't. I think it still happens in the music business today. I think somebody, Taylor Swift, complaining about it this week, that the music doesn't belong to you. You, you let it go for a certain price. It's, it's a tricksy business, the music business. It, it was really only when Chris Blackwell picked up Bob Marley, I suppose, that reggae began to get any mainstream recognition in the, in the Western Hemisphere, as it were, apart from Jamaica, because it's quite a... a it is... Speciality of Jamaica, which is interesting in itself, that Jamaica should have created all these amazing artists. And perhaps not so much from the other islands. 
Uh, and then, of course, the crossover from Jamaicans who came to Britain who settled here. So there is a British reggae scene as well. But it's always been pretty underground. And although Bob Marley did do a lot for reggae, I think he did bring reggae to everybody's, a lot of people's attention, in some ways that also drowned out some of the other major big artists, people like Dennis Brown, for example, who, you know, easily, you know, Gregory Isaacs, big artists that were just, I don't think they were, I don't know, there, wasn't, there didn't seem to be the same kudos for them as there was for Marley. They really pumped Marley to the top and nobody else really got a look in. Well, I did see Dennis Brown in the 70s as well. And Gregory, I think, yeah. They did come to London. They all came to London. And funnily enough, I just went to... They're recognising it now. A couple of weeks ago, I went to... an a plaque ceremony, they were putting a plaque up on the Old Island Studios, which is just behind Portobello Road for Bob Marley and the Whalers, uh, where they used to record. And, and we did have a night out after that down the Mau Mau Bar, dancing purely to Bob Marley all night long. <laughs> but were the others? I don't know. I mean, I know nobody else in the white community, I'd say, what well, the British English, I don't know, generally speaking, if you ask a white person what they like about reggae, they'll say Bob Marley. And you'll go, well, yeah, but what about, what about Alton Ellis, what about Sandy, what about, you know, there's millions. They're really fantastic artists, all of them. They didn't get the recognition. And some of them, like, I mean, obviously, Horace Andy's still performing and quite a few others of them, because they, they, they need the money. And only now are people beginning to think, oh, actually, yeah, there was more than Bob Marley. Yes, there was. There was a whole heap more than Bob Marley. I'm going to tell you something about Bob Marley now. You're asking me, is it negative? What was the attitude to reggae, negative or positive? Well, I remember seeing Bob Marley doing interviews back in the 70s. It was quite funny because he would not make any concessions at all for his interview. And he'd get all, obviously, because he'd got into mainstream. You'd get all sorts of pompous white interviews saying, you know, like, <laughs> you know, what, sort of, you know, general interview, like, what, what's this and that. And he would respond in the broadest Jamaican language he possibly could, so they didn't understand him. Very difficult to tra- for them to transcribe. It would be an absolute hoot. We'd all be laughing our socks <laughs> off. <laughs> and he did it quite deliberately, because he wanted, I, I appreciate, I think his desire was to deliver Jamaican culture to the world, a, a real cultural message mm. and, and pride. <laughs> so I think, and, and there, there were comments made at the time, you know, this, this was not what the mainstream would have ex- expected. They wanted him to conform into a sort of, you know, a pop music category and, and behave accordingly and do what he was told because... Again, I come back to the music business. I think they expect their artists to do as they're told and to, you know, perform in a certain way. And I don't know. It's, it's quite controlled by big business types. None of whom I should think are Jamaican. Well, I say none of whom are Jamaican. There's plenty of control in Jamaica, as I say, Jamaican producers in Jamaica as well. So you kind of stymied all the way around, in a sense. And 
Negative, well, I mean, negativity towards black people in general. Racism was rife in the 1970s. I feel with Brexit today, it's still pretty rife, actually. There, there is still some questionable comments being made in, in quite a few directions. It, it has always had to battle against that negativity, if you like, that, that negativity of, well, of racism. What can you say? Uh, so people's ears would be closed, I think, to the potential of such an amazing culture. And they wouldn't really give it at the time of day, really. And there'd be this fear. There's always been a kind of fear, I think, uh, as well. It's been around for a long time. It's still there. I don't know, this sort of big black man kind of bogeyman is going to get you. <laughs> it's just like, you know, I, I know, obviously, it's not true. You know, there will be bogeymen of all kinds. I'm not saying there ain't the bogeyman out there that might want to get you, but you cannot put a colour on it or a, or a, particular, a specific type. Whether Jim, I understand there is what's a, a black London language for the young people, and that language has been influenced by the Jamaican language very much so mainly because the Jamaican language is so creative and it changes every year, it has the best words for things. It's a really dynamic, moving language. And I call it a language, it's not a dialect, not an accent, it's, not a, it's a language. And it's a very specific, uh, if we went into the linguistics of why that might have developed, you know, again you'd be looking at the history, and you'd be looking at African people brought out of their own country into you know, a, sh a holocaust, really, of slavery, and, and how um, how people develop their, their, own way, their own way of living, and a rebellion, if you like. It, it's a rebellion. There was always a rebe rebellion in Jamaica, and a refusal to, to be in any kind of way um, be put down like that, and also to acknowledge the original culture. A lot, a lot of the reggae tunes are about going back to Africa and acknowledging their African heritage and roots. So I think language is, is a real important part of that, because I think it kind of almost gives you a secret language in terms of the master race, if you like, it's a bit dodged to put it like that, but it, I can. It, it, it is a form of rebellion still, a, f a form of keeping something alive that's hidden and buried, you know, for 400 years. Um, and it's a really important thing to do because so much has been taken away. And, and yet, I, I do believe that those people that were, you know, so appallingly treated, and I call it a holocaust. We talk about a Jewish holocaust in Germany. I think slavery was a holocaust and should be acknowledged and there should be reparations. I'm very pro the reparation movement. Um, but there is no way of, of making that up to people who have been through that experience and had to make a life in, in a country and, and then to come to somewhere like Britain called the motherland you know, Jamaica got independence in 63, but, I mean, the motherland was a, a crucial part. Uh, and 
oh, we could go on like this for, for hours, you know, in terms of what's happened to the Windrush people. Yeah, it's just appalling. So, yes, to come back to language and without going into the whole of the history, it's a really important way of expressing something. And I've... Young people taking it up, is, that is really another discussion, to be fair. I, I think I could probably go on for an hour or two about that, about why young people have adopted it. I don't think they necessarily listen to reggae, <laughs> but I think the rap culture is influenced a lot by reggae. Reggae's always had its toasters um, and a way of talking over the music, which sort of adds to the music as well. You've kind of got the music, you've got the lyrics, and then you've got some guy on top of it telling you another lyric, and how it goes. And, and often, you know, a smiley culture probably originally, and also... I like Smiley Culture because he did the sort of comparison with Cockney language, with Jamaican language. That kind of thing. Always very interesting. Uh, so, yeah, the, the, the kids like all of that. They like inventing, but that's young people for you as well because they're also coming in to adulthood. They're inventing all the time. And it's good to have your own little code. When you're young, I'm sure I did. That you don't really want the adults to know what you're on about. <laughs> Why would you? It's yours. And it's important to have it as yours. I dress pretty much now how I dressed back then. I've always been... <laughs> I don't know, black top, black trousers, maybe a black skirt sometimes. I did have platform boots in the 70s, obviously. They weren't necessarily reggae. A lot of the women, I would say, for well, no, I'm not, I'm not going to generalise. In fact, I'm not going to generalise about how people <laughs> dressed back in the day. There was people dressed how they dressed. Uh, it has changed a bit. For me, not so much. I, I am today who I was back then. Just a bit of experience thrown in. Um, as for that's clothes. I, I, I don't know clothes. The way I danced, I liked, well, I like dancing. I've always liked dancing. And I do remember when I was up north, still in Lancashire, and we used to go to, we used to go dances every week there. There'd be a live band. And, um, and I remember a friend of mine saying to me, then she said, can you teach me how you dance? I didn't think I was doing anything particularly different, but... She said, oh, yeah, she said, you're good at it, so can you teach me? So I tried to teach her. She couldn't do it. I was like, oh, so maybe not everybody can do just a basic two rhythm music. I don't know, it's just two beats, really. It's all four. I don't know what the beats are. You just move to the music, isn't it? You try and stay in time. I wouldn't say I was an amazingly good dancer to reggae because I think reggae, uh, when I watch the guys who dance to reggae... <laughs> It's a really clever dance. It's kind of slightly offbeat. It's kind of off the beat, and I can't do it. It's really hard. <laughs> I always think white people look a little bit strange dancing to reggae. They're not quite... Maybe got, got, got the thing for it, but... Um, but I love it. Still, I, I don't let it put me off, because I just do what I do. I mean, obviously, I know not to do 
white dad dancing, which is flinging your arms and legs all over the place and, you know, generally trying to take up the whole floor space, knocking people's drinks out. I'm generalising again, I'm teasing, I'm teasing the white dad dancers. Um, but yeah, you wouldn't do that down a Shabin, I can tell you, that would be frowned upon. <laughs> Although if you're a raster man, you can do what I call the two-step twirl with your, with your, with your rag in front of you, twirling it, you know, if there's space. Then you can do a little bit of step up, mm -hmm. stepping dancing. <laughs> That's allowed. Maybe not for women though. Not really that. Slightly sexist on that. You don't really <laughs> expect to keep up with, with that style. Did reggae affect my attitudes at all? It's a hard one, that. I don't know. I, I, I was always a bit of a rebel myself, obviously. I came down to London and. Uh, Difficult to describe my first few years in London. They were pretty tough, um, but good fun. I haven't had a conventional route through university, job, family. I don't think I ever wanted it. I was fairly adamant, even as a teenager, that I, I don't really want to live in a suburban, semi-detached, with a garage. Um, <laughs> didn't necessarily want to do what the standard path might have been. And there were reasons for that as well, which I won't go into, a bit personal, but, um, yeah, I, and I didn't call myself a rebel, obviously. I didn't think of myself as rebelling. I mean, I might look back now and say I was perhaps rebelling. Maybe I identified a little bit with reggae for that. Although, I'd hesitate about saying that I identified anything like that. I, I am always aware of myself as, as, I suppose, an outsider in the reggae scene. So I don't really want to sound like I'm an expert. I don't want to sound like I'm white-splaining. You know, I, I've just enjoyed reggae um, as an outsider. Tried, yes to understand the culture and, and appreciate it in the best way I can and, and be an ambassador for it where I could as well, where people were, you know, talking nonsense and try, try and correct them gently. Um, but what can you do? It, it's, I don't suppose that might be my attitude. I think my attitude is... I think my attitude was always, even from Lancashire, a bit of a free spirit. I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. Uh, why did I want to stay in Brent when, uh, as far as I was concerned, London revolved around Earl's Court and the West End? I was, I was excited to be in London, and I always wanted to be in London as well. I was always, even from the very first time I visited London, when I was 12, I think, I came down to London for a day trip, and I knew that, that I would be living in London at some point. Uh, I always felt, again, I felt at home in London, still do. Uh, even though my roots, my heritage, are northern, I acknowledge that. I'm still a northerner. You will still hear traces of a northern accent. Uh, and I'm not knocking the north in any way. I support the northwest in every possible way I can as well. Uh, but London is my home. London is my adopted home. Um, I, it was the people of Kensal. It was Kensal Green I came to. It was the Harrow Road which, as I say, looked on the surface to be very grim. 
But the people that I met there were the best people I could ever possibly meet. And I just grew to love them. I loved the people in the youth theatre, made lots of really good friends. We had some amazing experiences together. Um, a lot of stuff that's, you know, about the area. We, we just got to know people in the area. We knew a lot of people who lived in Kensal Green or Harlesden. <laughs> you know, I suppose I got to know a lot of different... Different... I don't know how to say... Diverse, is it? I, I'm not even too keen on the word diverse. People for me are people who were just a lot of people in Kensal Green and Harlesden that we got to know. And I got to know, got to love them, got to like them, still know some of them. The, the same man who took me down to the Shabine that very first night, I am still in touch with him. I saw him, and I see him every year at the mangrove practice, still pan band practice for carnival on a Friday night. And I see quite a lot of the old people. I don't know, but I'm still in touch with him and a few others. Yeah. So, yeah, friends for life I, I made in Brent. Um, yeah, and, and now I've lived all over Brent. I've lived from Halston, I moved to Bronsbury, and now I'm in Wilsdon. I've, I've been all over Brent, in Wilsdon now, and I still love it. It got known as the Looney Left Borough for a while, back in the day. 70s and 80s. Brent was very, was progressive actually, one of the very first boroughs that really did try and acknowledge the issue of racism and, and the effects, the knock-on effects it would have on people's lives and tried to change things and do stuff like positive discrimination or have festivals where, where you could have, you know, I think there were some some concessions made to having some reggae music. There was always a bit of reggae. Wherever you went, there'd be a bit of reggae in Brent. There would at the festivals. You'd have to. You'd have to. There would be acknowledgement of that. And as I say, even when we did our Punch and Judy show, although, you know, we, we did gently poke fun at the Stonebridge Flats. Our back cloth was the, the... The back cloth to our Punch and Judy show was the Stonebridge Flats, the estate as it was... <laughs> which you may not remember uh, but I do um, very grey <laughs> mostly grey uh, and, and we used to joke about Judy fixing up the Ford Cortinas at the bottom of the flats with her toolbox what is, what is the influence of reggae on Brent? there's not enough influence of reggae on Brent and I think it's drifted along the years until now we're in some kind of desert for reggae in Brent there's a place, even that, there was a place in Wembley I went to a while ago. That, that's, there's bits and bobs. There's still Leary Constantine, which they're threatening to close. There was BBMC, uh, which is the theorem now, and they're sort of still going, but not like it was. And, and Leary isn't what it was either. They struggle for funding. And, and then there's Bridge Park, of course. Bridge Park, big, multi you know, a venue that was given to the people of Stonebridge by... Uh, again, I, I don't really want to go into the whole politics of that because I know there's a big movement afoot and I hope you will interview somebody who is involved in the trying to save it from the greedy grasps of Brent Council wanting to build yet another horrible block of flats there.
Um, <laughs> and Leary's the same. They want to put a bunch of flats on top of that. Oh, it's just bonkers. You're just like, well, how can you put a block of flats on top of a reggae venue? And people do still have, I mean, those places are so important to the community. They have their funerals there. They have weddings there. They have parties there. I've been to a couple of parties recently at both Leary and, and BBMC. Great, you know, I mean, they, they haven't really got enough funding. They haven't really got enough money to make them how they should be. But um, they're great community places, still serving the community, still playing a lot of the same old tunes. Well, as I say, I still go to parties in Brighton. I would be still going to the Heritage if they haven't closed it. That's what I mean. I, I worry. I worry that Brent doesn't nurture... It's, it talks a lot about diversity and talks a lot about, you know, being the borough of culture. But as I say, we've lost some really good venues over the years. We're in danger of losing Bridge Park, where I've been to loads of really good parties and, and dances as well, and seen artists there. You know, it has delivered for me. Um, so yeah, there isn't enough as far as I'm concerned. There's not enough reggae in Brent. They could have a lot more. Brixton's much better. So's Hackney, in terms of looking after their uh, cultural heritage, I think. But although I hear from my Brixtonian people that even Brixton is now, well, they've got another name for it. I forget what they call it. <laughs> Somebody told me the other day it was quite funny talking about language. What do they call it? Uh, no, uh, no longer be Brixton. I think something like that anyway, because Brixton's been gentrified as well and is going to lose some of its most precious resources that have been there for many a year. So I do think we should do more to preserve the heritage and do more to acknowledge the contribution of all the Caribbean islands, but majorly Jamaican heritage people, I think, settled in Brent and have contributed not just to the music industry, but to so much else, and continue to do so. I, I mean, and now it's wonderful to see people branching out in all different directions of the arts and science, uh, and doing incredibly well. And media, long may it continue. There's a lot of talent out there. Mm. There always was a lot of talent, it just wasn't recognised back in the 70s and 80s, to the same degree. Well, and they're still... You know, it's still harder. That has to be acknowledged, so you have to make provision. We, as a community, we need to nurture. Nurture our young people. I find this incredibly important in terms of what's happening today in view of the knife crime epidemic, as they like to call it on the telly. It, it's been a problem for many a year. It hasn't just happened in the last year or the last two years. This has been... An increasing problem, and I work with young people, so I've seen it firsthand. And I see how little there is really for a particular um, category of young people, I suppose. I, I think they've been very neglected and, and been pushed out into finding a, a, a life for themselves, which involves a very dangerous world, really, of postcode warfare, drug dealing, county lines whatever, you know, they've found an alternative because they didn't find what they needed in the mainstream. And I think that's a terrible indictment on our society and our community, that we haven't found a way to nurture those young people 
in the way we should. And I also know that for those young people, music still is their primary source of inspiration and, and nourishment. Well, you know, you could call drill music. <laughs> for some of us that watch it, obviously, you're like, oh, I don't know if I really like that. A bit like the rap music, you know, I, I don't. I, I'll be the first to say some of the lyrics are not what I'd call, you know, great in any shape or form and often derogatory to women and often violent, which is not something I think, yeah, we really want to encourage. Although, but at the same time, I kind of understand it. If you went to a sound system clash back in the 70s, as I often did, maybe Jashaka versus Coxon, whatever, and they did, you need to clash back then and it'd be great fun. Um, I also brought, uh, going on to sound clashes, I, I went over to Amsterdam with a youth group once who brought a reggae sound system. We had, a, we had the Kensal Green reggae sound system with us. I drove the box van. I digress onto that. <laughs> it's quite exciting driving the box van through Amsterdam. <laughs> And we did clashes with Amsterdam DJs. It was good fun. One of which was open air. It was great fun. And obviously they're very competitive. And you will hear all sorts of language that is, metaphorically speaking, quite violent. You know, we're going you know, to kill your sound dead because we're going to put on the next tune, which will be the killer. Everything in reggae is about yes, finding the next killer tune that will get the crowd jumping and pumped up. And, and it's, it's very exciting. And I think that's fine. <laughs> it's very like it when it spills over into real life, which it can do. But then emotions, you know, they, they we're talking really strong emotions, really difficult issues here, which, again, is another story. However, I, I think music nurtures all of us in whatever shape or form, actually. Not just reggae, you know. I, as I say, reggae is not my only love. I, I love all sorts of music. And I think the young people need it, and, and uh, we all need it in our lives. Now then, uh, <laughs> Desert Island Discs. I, I did give you three tracks. I also said on my bio, how hard is it to choose three tracks? <laughs> I, I do recommend you listen to some of my past shows, on, on, which are on the Mixcloud under the Kilburn Herald show, you will always find a reggae section, usually in the last half hour, where I play a lot of my favourite tunes. <laughs> you can hear me dro drooling over them, saying, yes, this one, this one, this uh, There's so many artists I, I like. Um, I, I, the ones I chose for this particular interview, and I, I'll probably change my mind now, I know I chose Alton Ellis and Why Do Birds Follow Spring? which is an early tune of Alton Ellis's, and it's very poignant, I think, and very philosophical. I love the lyrics. I love the... Just the... It's, it's just very... I find it very moving. Um, I don't know what else I can say. It, it kind of makes me cry a little. It brings a little tear to my eye. It's the way he sings it. He's got an amazing voice. Obviously, Alton Ellis is just a maestro. Um, yeah, 
for that era. Just one of the best tunes. And I think... I should have reminded me what I chose. I think I chose the Abyssinians. I chose the Abyssinians. And I could have chosen any one of them. That, that was one of the records that I bought from one of the record shops in Harlesden. I knew all the record shops in Harlesden. They all knew me. I would go along, hum them a tune or a lyric. They'd raise their eyes to the ceiling and then they'd find it for me. <laughs> Again, they're a very mystical, sort of almost sacred reggae, very religious almost. Um, Satamasagana, you know, it's, it's really all about, I don't, I, find, I don't know, moving towards a better life somewhere, whether I suppose it's after death or whether it's within this life or whether it's within your soul and your spirit to be seeking, to be always seeking something better. And I think the Abyssinians really did. Well, one of the groups, there were others that have that mystical quality that take you onto another plane, another level of, of consciousness, um, make you, I don't know, be philosophizing about what life is. And it can lead to all sorts of conversations, I suppose. But it, 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 conversation aside, there's some things you can't put into words. It, it's a, Again, it's a music that hits you in your heart and your soul and your mind and maybe cannot necessarily be explained. But it, you feel it on, on a level of, of knowing who you are in this life. That's as much as I can say. And, and on, on the Abyssinians, and there are other ones as well uh, like them. Chronics, oh, chronics. I thought, yes, I had to have an up-to-date one. Because <laughs> I, I don't only listen to Roots. Roots, you will know, is my favourite, probably, out of all the reggae styles, if you like. There's a lot of different styles. Dancehall's probably my least favourite, although I love those awesome dancehall tunes I rate. <laughs> Particularly Dancehall Queen, obviously. <laughs> That'll always get me up. But what gets me up now, I thought, you know, I'm still here, I'm still in. I, I do listen to some of the recent tracks. Chronics, for me. Along with Jar Cure, I like Jar Cure. But, but I particularly like uh, like likes. <laughs> Just say that properly. Chronics, because I like the lyrics to that as well. We do it for the love, we don't do it for the likes. What an important message. And, you know, we live in a world of social media where everybody just clicks like on this or like on that. I, don't, I thought it was a really clever lyric, actually. And very key to music that we do, first and foremost, before money, before power, before status, before recognition and fame and all the rest of it, you do it for the love. And, and you can tell so many of the artists have done it for the love. I, the love just flows through reggae. You can tell I'm an absolute aficionado. I just won't hear a word against it. The love flows through the rhythms, the different ways in which they put voice together alongside the rhythms, and then the lyrics on top of the voice and the rhythms, and the incredible musicability that's underpinning all that. <laughs> 